Hey everybody, this is episode 129 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas, recording this intro to a live podcast I did last Friday with Charlie Engel and Michael Wardian. I teed that up a couple of episodes ago in terms of that happening in Austin and was good we had a great little group come out do a run with michael and charlie and then got to do a q a with them in front of the live live audience including getting questions from the audience and i will do a little bit more of an intro on that in just a second i had some current events to share and i needed to give a little bit of a, a rant as we open this podcast because we just got some news this week that another athlete from the Olympic Marathon in 2016 in Rio in the women's race tested positive for EPO, Eunice Kerwa, who finished in silver in Rio, tested positive and has now been issued a provisional suspension pending a full hearing on her EPO positive. And so that's obviously incredibly frustrating at one level as a fan to see that because we've already had the Olympic gold medalist from Rio, Jemima Sumgong, get busted for EPO as well. So now the top two in that race have been busted for EPO. So that's frustrating on one hand. On the other hand, in some ways, it's a good news, which means we're actually slowly rooting out some of these cheaters. But it must be incredibly demoralizing for the Americans in the field that day, you had Shalane Dez and Amy Hastings Craig finish 6th, 7th, and ninth place. Three top 10 finishes. And if you take out those two now cheaters from the top two spots, then you're at 4th, 5th, and 7th. And there's at least one athlete still in that, that top group that hasn't been provisionally suspended or brought into a doping case the Belarusian athlete from that Olympics who finished fourth, who has a lot of questionable results as well that would make you think this is somebody else who's suspicious, who also has a coach who's a a former convicted doper. And so it's possible that Shalane actually should have been third in this race if you're taking only the clean athletes. Des could have been fourth. Amy Hastings Craig could could have been sixth. Three Americans in the top six in Rio would it would be absolutely insane. And it's still impressive to have three in the top nine, but the fact that potentially Shalane has had a medal stolen from her and those Americans had the associated accolades by, you know, moving three places up, taken from them, it's just incredibly frustrating. And I can't even imagine what those women are thinking and going through and Des and Shalane and, and Amy Hastings Craig all apparently talked in Rio that year after the race that perhaps in a couple of years they would all get upgraded or moved moved up a little bit because they had some question about the athletes that finished in front of them. And sure enough, that is proving to be true. So I can't even imagine competing at the Olympics and knowing that your place as it was on that day wasn't even real because you're competing against people that are taking shortcuts. So that's sort of the surface level rant, the surface level frustration. But to me, there's a couple of other layers to this that are really, really important to talk about. 
one is that some people are going to ask, well, how and why did she not test positive before? Because there's no doubt in my mind if she's testing positive for EPO now that she had to have been using it back then, especially as you have athlete, athletes like Shalane Des and Amy Craig talking suspiciously about some of the women at the top. So there's no way that she suddenly is now using EPO. So how is it that she didn't test positive? Well, most likely because she wasn't being tested that much or at all. And we don't know those facts, but that would be interesting to learn. She was actually an athlete that was training in Japan and competing under the flag of Bahrain. She's a Kenyan athlete, however, as many of those athletes sort of get paid off to go switch their their allegiance and go run for Bahrain. And so, but she was training in Japan. So first question is, does Bahrain actually have a legitimate national testing program? Likely not. And even if they did, are they going to send somebody to Japan to test Eunice Kerwa? Probably not. Which means that if she was tested in and around the Olympics then it likely only would have been after finishing in the top three. And which means that it would have, it would have been probably dumb to, for her to take EPO a few days before the Olympic marathon, when all of its benefits would have already paid off in training. And so most likely she wasn't tested until after the Olympics in a situation where that, drug would have been used in training and already would have cleared the system before she would have been tested in that situation and so wasn't tested because those countries haven't been held accountable to properly testing their athletes and the IAAOC is complicit in this because they're not actually holding these countries including now Russia who we know has a state-sponsored doping program or at least did they're not actually holding these countries accountable for keeping the testing protocols where they need to be and testing these athletes as they should. So you're getting this very limited testing window. And, and of course, if an athlete plans that appropriately, then they can make sure that those drugs are out of their system before they get tested at a global championship. So that's why she didn't test positive for EPO in the Olympics. Now, it is encouraging, again, that she has tested positive now, so that means that they are cracking down or moving to a place where these countries are putting testing protocols in, protocols in place, but still a little bit too late, and I would believe that still not all countries have the programming and or the resources and funding to potentially have national testing programs that are appropriately run in order to find these athletes out of competition so that they're not able to show up at the Olympics and steal the glory of somebody like a Shalane Flanagan. So that's sort of point one is that the IAAF, the IOC need to be held accountable. The World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, need to be held accountable for making sure these national governing bodies have the appropriate testing protocols in place. Point two is that if Eunice Kerwa goes down, her agent, her coach also need to go down, and that's probably the biggest problem 
in today's doping world, which is that these agents and coaches that get associated with with dirty athletes aren't taken out, aren't suspended as well. If you look at Kerwa's coach, which happens to be her husband, was recently had Abraham Kiptum, the Nash, the world record holder in the half marathon, busted for a biological passport anomaly. So he has another dirty athlete. Why isn't he implicated in cases like this, especially now that he has his second athlete that is facing a suspension for doping protocols? That coach needs to be held accountable, needs to receive a suspension that is equivalent or longer than the athletes so that those types of dirty coaches can be taken out of the system. Next, let's look at Kerwa's agent. Oh, hmm, interesting. Mark Korsgens has three, two other, excuse me, two other athletes, Ruth Jabet, steeplechaser, Kipigon Bet, 800-meter runner, both who have taken global medals and then subsequently been busted for EPO. And now you have his third athlete, Kerwa, who has taken a global medal and has been now busted for EPO. That agent, Mark Korschens, needs to be held accountable for this as well. Now, we know how this will play out. We know he'll deny knowledge. We know he'll say that Kerwa acted on her own volition. But a pattern is a pattern. And to me, whether these agents know it or not, or or are or complicit or not with their the activities of their athletes, they should still be held responsible for ensuring that they're representing athletes that are doing things the right way or that they're working with coaches that are doing things the right way. So it's no surprise to me that her coach and her agent have also been associated with dirty athletes. Now, as it works now in the system, Kerwell gets suspended. Samgong, who got gold, has an eight years. She's serving an eight-year suspension. Kerwell will get anywhere probably from two to four years. But what will happen to that agent and to that coach? Probably nothing. And that's a fundamental problem because then what they'll do is go around and do the same thing with another athlete and then rob, un- rob someone else of a global medal and the associated financial and emotional benefits, triumphant benefits of having that place on a podium, and that's just wrong. So IAAF, IOC, WADA has to extend their purview to take out the coaches and agents that are time and time again having these situations come up. So that's point two. Point three is the record needs to be corrected as it relates to the Olympics in 2016. Right now, the way it works, if your your drug test positive comes after your global medal and they can't prove that you were doing drugs before that, then you get to keep that medal. So as it stands, Jemima Sumgong, still Olympic gold medalist from 2016 in Rio, even though she's now serving an eight-year suspension for EPO positive. Eunice Kerwa, 
the way the process plays out unless they can prove that she was taking EPO before, which how could they if they didn't have the right testing protocols in place? Eunice Curwell will still be an Olympic silver medalist even though she's now been test, tested positive for EPO. Shalane will never rightfully claim her fourth place or potentially her third place if ever that Belarusian athlete gets gets busted. They'll never claim their rightful place. The record will always show, most likely, two dirty athletes at the top of this event. And that's just wrong. To me, if you get busted for something like EPO, then all of your results should be stripped retroactively. Just like if a college was using an an ineligible athlete at the end of the season, then those results would be stripped for as long as they had used that ineligible athlete. And to me... The assumption should go backwards, that if they've been tested positive now, then all of their results should be stripped for all time. And the appropriate clean athletes should be able to occupy those spots. And as of now, that's not the way the process works. And so those athletes that should take gold, silver, and bronze in the 2016 marathon retroactively will never get that glory as faded as it is versus getting it on the day. And the IAAF, the IOC, the World Anti-Doping Agency needs to fix that part of the process because it will raise the punishment stakes. I mean, if I'm Jemima Sumgong and I'm always going to hold an Olympic gold medal because I cheated to get it, where is the incentive not to cheat? The stakes for cheating need to be so high, so rigorous, that it's a discouragement to anyone to do it. On top of, of course, the fact that they need to take agents and coaches out of competition or out of their ability to coach and be agents by having multiple doped athletes in their purview. And then, of course, we need to continue to hold national governing bodies accountable for having the right testing procedures in place, no matter where their athletes might train. Now, if you look at the World Marathon Majors versus the Olympics, they've taken the matters into their own hands. They know that these athletes aren't being tested appropriately by the national governing bodies. They know that the system in place by the national governing bodies is inadequate. So they've said, hey, we're going to have our own testing protocol. And if you want to be considered for a world marathon major, New York, Chicago, Boston, Tokyo, London, Berlin, then you need to be in our testing pool, which is run by the Athletics Integrity Unit, in order to be eligible to compete in a world marathon major, which means you need to be tested a certain number of times in a random fashion and prove that you're clean. Some races are also at that level refusing to work with certain agents that have a history of this type of thing. And so as Shalane said in reaction to this Kerwa EPO positive, she said, look, we don't feel protected at the Olympics, but I feel more protected at the World Marathon Majors because they're actually putting their own protocols in place to make sure this type of thing doesn't happen, to make sure that these dirty athletes don't end up on the starting line. And so hats off to the World Marathon Majors for doing that. Now it's time for the IOC 
to raise the stakes and do the same for the IAAF to do the same with the world championships and to push the IOC to do the same with the Olympics. It just has to happen because this is absolute utter bullshit that this stuff keeps happening. Dirty athletes at the top of the podium and never correcting the record accordingly. So there you go. That's my rant, but it only in hindsight makes those performances by Shalane Des and Amy Hastings Craig that much more impressive on that day in Rio. So hats off to those ladies. We will celebrate you always, regardless of what the record shows. But also I can't help but have a little bit of sadness and and just be a little bit depressed about this for those ladies as well who I believe are doing it the right way, who are working hard. And knowing that they have to be at their on their best to be on a podium, but also know that they have to beat those that are taking shortcuts. I can't even imagine what that's like. Thinking about working hard just to get an Olympic medal, but then have to double down on that so that you can beat those or th- try to even think about beating those that are doing it the wrong way. And that's just so depressing to me to think about somebody like Shalane having to think that way and what does that do to your mindset what does that do to how you're pushing your body because you know that not only do you have to do it do everything the right way to just even have a chance against clean athletes but then you have to double down on that to beat those that might be doing it with EPO in their system and that's just a travesty but I'll end my rant there because I want you guys to be educated again as a fan for me I'm still a fan but I'm an educated fan who can then pick out those that I that I am suspicious of and not root for them, not waste my fan energy in them, while then also investing even more energy in those that I do believe in and celebrating their result regardless of where it comes. So, so there you go. That's my rant and a bit on current events for today. Getting back to my conversation with Charlie and Mike just to give you a little bit of a preview on this it's a really interesting conversation a lot of fun one thing we learned is that Mike and Michael Wardian especially is just a funny guy so it was really great conversation with him both of these guys are badasses that have just done some really insane big things in their lives including running across 4,000 miles across the Sahara in Charlie Ingalls case doing 10 marathons in 10 days and an average of 255 in Mike Wardian's case, as well as doing crazy things like running across Israel in the fastest known time. And, and so they've just both done really big things and don't seem to be afraid of any challenge. And so we dig in with them on those things and what makes them tough mentally. We talk about their training. We talk about the fact that they're both, both plant plant-based eaters as well and it's a really far-ranging conversation that I think anybody will find interesting. And certainly anybody who is interested in the ultra world will certainly find interesting as well. So let's just jump right into it. And so with that as an intro, here's my conversation with Charlie and Michael last Friday in Austin. Welcome, Charlie and Mike, to Rogue Running. Thank you. How are you guys doing today? great man it's been an awesome day sweaty yeah (laughs) and welcome all of you that are listening this is a a live podcast recording we've got an audience here we will i'll get to some questions with charlie and mike and then we'll turn it over to you for those that want to ask questions 
First, we have to thank Spartan for inviting or bringing, I should say, Charlie and Mike to Rogue. And we're going to thank their sponsors, Hoka, for supporting them as athletes, yeah. as well as Ultra, who's here in the back. Thanks, Ultra, for being out. Rogue Expeditions for leading our run. Allison and Gabe are in the house for those that want to take a running travel trip. And, of course, our friends at Jackrabbit, who made the connection as well. And I'm excited to be here. Are you guys excited to be here? Yeah. All right. We're going to start with a question on origin stories. You know, we get a, get a lot of superhero movies in in the theater these days. And so, Mike, I wanted to start with you. How did you get to this place of doing all these crazy ultra adventures? Give us the Cliff Notes version of your, your journey to this point. Yeah, it's funny. I've I've given this story like three times today. I think Charlie's probably sick of it by now. I heard it in the car earlier. <laughs> uh, would you like me to do it? Yeah, you? you might be able <laughs> no. to do it. Wait, we, you do mine, I'll do yours. It was good. Yeah, it was yeah. good. I enjoyed it, though. Yeah. Um, so th the quick um, story is I was not a runner growing up. I played a sport called lacrosse where you kind of run around and hit people with sticks and uh, try to score goals. And uh, you only did running if it was like a punishment. And so... Um, I, I didn't have like the typical, you know, track background. I never ran cross country. I actually used to like make fun of the kids on the cross country team at Michigan state where I played lacrosse because I was like, man, those guys are so skinny. Like they wear those like high shorts, like, you know, come on, like seriously. Um, and now I am that guy, you know, so it's comes full circle, I guess. Um, but I, Stopped playing lacrosse like the, I think like the middle to end of my junior year and picked up running just to kind of like uh, offset some of the um, beers that I was drinking at the bars, um, figuring like, hey, this is a really efficient uh, way to stay fit. Um, you know, 45 minutes, you get a good workout. Um, I have the rest of my day to like do, I was used to working out four hours a day and Told me I have to work out two hours a day. I was like, wow, this is a good trade-off. And I have a lot more time to party. I'm like, this is awesome. Um, and and it was weird because, like, I ran 5K and then all of a sudden 5K turned into 10K. And then all of a sudden I'm, like, running to, like, the really – Michigan State's a huge campus. So I'm, like, running to, like, the very, like, dairy farm, like, that we have. Like, I'm like, wow, I just ran 10 miles. Like, that's crazy. Um, and I ended up getting lucky. I visited my buddy Vince Voison's house for Easter that year and his mom, Vicky Voison had just gotten back from the Boston marathon. And so she had her little, uh, unicorn medal. I remember it vividly. I was like, Holy crap, unicorn medal. I was like, I want that. <laughs> and like, she had her like crinkly, like space blanket. And I was like, what is that? Like, it looked like it, like something from like NASA, you know, you're like, wow, that's awesome. And it was the first time that I had ever, um, met like, cause every time that you see a marathon on TV, or at least the, I had seen like wide world of sports and I'd seen like Ann Trayson and like Bill Rogers and those people, but they're all like super skinny and like look like they grew up running and it was the first time I ever met somebody that was just a normal person like most everyone here like it was it made it attainable and so I was like I want to run the Boston Marathon like I decided like at that moment and it was like one of those times in your life where it's like a small decision that completely changed the course of my life like just making that 
um, snap decision. I was like, I'm doing it. I was like, if I'm a division one athlete, if Vince's mom can run a marathon, I can run a marathon. Like can't be that hard. Right. Uh, and it turns out it is kind of hard. Um, but she was nice enough to give me like a packet and it just said run six miles. I was like, okay, I run six miles on Tuesday. And then I just did that and sent away for my packet in the, in the mail. Cause this was like in 1995 and it was like the internet wasn't really a thing. It was like not there. So I got like the, the pamphlet back from the Boston marathon and my self-addressed stamp envelope. I was like, who wrote this? Oh, I wrote that to myself. Uh, and it said like, Hey, uh, what's your qualifying time? And I was like, what are you talking about? I just want to run your marathon. I didn't know you had to qualify for, I didn't know I was like making somebody's like life dream when I decided I was going to run the Boston marathon. I was just like, Oh, that's the one I want to do. And so I was like, well, I guess I got to qualify. So I ran the Marine Corps marathon cause I'm from Washington DC. And I figured if it goes really bad, then my parents can come pick me up on the side of the road and I go home. <laughs> and, uh, it actually went pretty well. I ran, I think I had to run under three hours and 10 minutes. And I think I ran 306 um, and qualified. And it was, you know, t I ran in lacrosse shorts with like boxer shorts and cotton t-shirt and had all the issues that goes along with that. And, um, but I made it. And then I decided I was going to try to break three hours in the marathon and I'd be done. You know, I'd, just like, i uh, run the Boston Marathon, I'll break three hours, I'll be done. I uh, ran the Boston Marathon, completely fell in love with the sport even more than I was. Like, I was getting into running, but, like, just to see, like, the energy and passion that is at Boston, um, if anyone's ever done the race or been in town for it, it's it's a super special thing. And it kind of hooked me, and then uh, I broke three hours and, and qualified uh, to run it again. And, and in the meantime, I decided I'll just do all the big marathons. Uh, so I did like, uh, New York, Chicago, Marine Corps, and everyone's like, dude, you're going to get destroyed. You're going to get broken. And, uh, each time I got faster and I felt better. And then someone told me about the JFK 50 miler and it was just in a room like this. And I was just like, that's not true. Like, I was like, that's, I was like the guy sitting in the back, like, dude, that guy's crazy. Like you can't run 50 miles. That's not possible. And then he's like, yeah, it totally is possible. And I was like, oh, well, sweet. Then I'm going to win because like I ran, I ran like two hours and 40 minutes by that point. I was like, if you just take my time and double it, like I'm going to win. And so I like went to the JFK 50 miler and by like mile 30, I was definitely not winning. And these old dudes were like Jeff Galloway walking right by me. And I was like, I'm not walking. I'm a runner. And like, just stupid. And like, I wasn't fueling or I was just, I just didn't know. And I thought it was like cheating to take in anything outside my body. So I was like, just drinking like water, like every 20 miles. It was so dumb. Um, and anyhow, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't win. Um, but I finished the race and, and then, and that's when I decided like I would do some Ironmans and, and do some other stuff and did an Ironman like Placid in 1999 and then kind of got back into, um, racing like longer stuff. I did a race called the Marathon de Saab 
and ended up finishing like first American and like 25th overall and was like the youngest guy there. And that's when I really like decided like, oh, I have some talent at this. Like maybe I should like stop drinking and like actually train and decided to try to qualify for the Olympic trials and ran in 2004, 2008, 2012 and um, have since like qualified for the 100K world team for the US like eight times and 50K world championships and went back and actually did win the JFK 50 miler in 2007. So like 10 years after I thought I was going to win, I actually did win. Um, but it was um, this this complete uh, infatuation with running and it's kind of my origin story. And then from there, I, now I get to do like even crazier stuff. No doubt. 10 marathons in 10 days recently. Yeah. No big deal. You know, that was almost exactly my story. Yeah. I was just thinking the same. <laughs> Very yeah. similar. Yeah. Give, us, give us a little bit of your origin story, Charlie. Actually, I have to just say, uh, it's exciting to me to know that I was breaking three hours in a marathon when he was still only running 3.06 because there was only a very small window of time where that was true. And uh, actually, in 1996, my favorite story is about Boston, I've done it a bunch of times, but is 96 was 100. You know, and my son was five years old. Was it? My oldest son. So 96 was the 100th Boston Marathon. Okay. And <clears throat> I went, did the race, came home. I'm wearing my medal. And what does a five-year-old ask you? Did you win? <laughs> right? I said, yes, I did. <laughs> and he came home when he was like 11 from school one time. He's like, Dad, you did not win the Boston <laughs> Marathon. Like, he believed that I won that race for many years until finally at school, they're talking about the Boston Marathon. He's like, my dad won that. <laughs> and somebody's like, are you, are you sure? Like, you know, Wait, he is was your pissed. dad African? Because I don't yeah, think he was, so. He was not happy with me. So, um, so my, yeah. I mean, the only thing that Michael and I really have in common in our, our far backgrounds is a lot of drinking. Uh, I just did mine a lot more prolifically, I think, than you did. And I mixed in a lot of drugs, too. So it, it, was, it was fun for me to walk in here today because a few of you uh, have, have read or listened to my book. And uh, so it's always interesting to come into a place where people know, like, intimate details way too way more than you'd want to know most of the time about any stranger but um but i love that and i look i'm an addict through and through i still am i'm 27 years clean and sober but my story is based entirely in um figuring out how to be in this world as an addict you know and a sober addict because i when i i basically spent my uh, 20s just killing myself and uh, when my first son who I was just talking about when he was finally born I was like I'm, I'm done like that's it I'm, I'm done I don't want to I grew up in an alcoholic household I didn't want my kids exposed to that and so you know I was holding this tiny little baby and thinking you know I, I want to be sober but that wasn't enough you know a couple months later there I was again on another six day binge and like it, it took that final sort of nail in my addiction coffin to figure out that I, uh, that I was the only person who could save myself. My son couldn't save me. Nobody was going to be able to come save me. I had to figure this out for myself. And it was, it was on that day, you know, July 23rd, uh, 1992, 
that I made a decision that I was going to quit. And the first two things I did was go to an AA meeting that night and I got up the next morning and I put on my running shoes and I went for a run. And for the next three years, I did those two things every single day without missing a day. And I ran, you know, 30 or so marathons during that three years. And it was, it was as much as anything, an effort to try to pound the addict out of me. Like I, I wanted to kill that guy because he was trouble. <clears throat> and uh, if I could like take a scalpel and cut him out, I would have. And those three years actually taught me that my addict was all the best parts of me. Like if I wasn't, if I didn't have this addictive nature, then I probably wouldn't be good at anything. And so it wasn't about getting rid of that. It was about figuring out how I was going to channel and focus that into something positive, you know, something that was meaningful to me. And so, you know, that began this, this progress. I knew that running, running saved my life. And, and then it kind of gave me a life. And, you know, I've never been nearly as fast as Mike, but you know, what I figured out early on is that to do well in races, I needed to find things that were really as hard as I could find them and longer than other people wanted to run and with conditions that other people didn't like. And like, that was all part of what I looked for in running. And, it, and it's what I got out of it. You know, I, I'll just finish that part by saying, you know, I, I talk to my kids all the time. We're both in their 20s now, but I, I always say that there's no, you know, when you ask anybody uh, what the meaningful things in their life are, how did you become who you are? Nobody ever says, oh, this shit's just been as easy as anything. I, I don't even know. You know, they always tell you the hard stories. They tell you the things that are meaningful and that, uh, that meaning almost always comes from hardship. So for me, the, the through line with running for me is that I get to, voluntarily on purpose put myself in really difficult situations that I know for sure we were just talking about this earlier Mike and I I know for sure I'm going to want to quit like I've never done a, I've never done a hundred that that voice didn't jump into my head and say you are a freaking idiot why what possible reason is there for you to be out here and you know and then that's what I want to get to and I want to find a way, though, to figure out how to move beyond that. And that's the meaningful part of, of running. So I answered, I, I don't know if I actually answered anything you asked me. But <laughs> wait, did you ask me something? Well, it's one yeah. thing to run 30 marathons in three years or to do a 100 miler. Mm. It's a whole other thing to run 4,000 miles across the Sahara. So what motivates you to do something like that, which is just this crazy far beyond task? Yeah, you know... And, and again, Mike and I, I think, I think he's slowly moving this way, but I actually reached a point where I didn't want to just do other people's events, like just show up at the start line, you know, and yes, do my training and whatever and just show up and do it. I wanted to start planning my own things. I wanted to see what it felt like to, you know, just get out the maps wherever it was and one small step back for, for about five years, I did like every major adventure race in the world. So that was the, the previous iteration of the eco challenge and the raid Gawaz and all. And I, I like I kind of say that I learned true physical suffering like properly from that sport. And but I figured out from that that I really liked this idea of just seeing if I could map something out, seeing if I could plan the logistics for it and then seeing if I could pull it off. And I. 
it's very satisfying uh, to know that you know I am responsible for me. I can't get to the end and say that course wasn't marked properly, <laughs> you know, because you know I'm the guy holding the map, and I, I just like the I like the power that that gave me. The other piece of that is, you know, what I like to say is is cultural exploration because you know you you cannot see the world seeing the world from the back of a tour bus or whatever is not for me, and I doubt it's for anybody in this room. I'd rather see it <clears throat> from my feet in slow motion mike's a little faster but it's still slow motion compared to a car and you know and and getting a chance to interact with actual people out there in the world and and experience their culture and you know i think i've run in probably 60 countries up to this point and i would like to hit all the rest of them if i could before i'm done what about you mike why why 10 marathons in 10 days for a guinness world record um, well, I wanted to do it the last time. Uh, I did the seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, uh, in 2017. Uh, but it ended in Sydney, Australia, and I was doing a hundred K the next week in New Zealand. And I had to fly home and get my family because my wife was like, I'm not flying to New Zealand on my own with two kids. So you have to fly home. So I didn't stay in Australia and just fly over to New Zealand. Um, so this was an opportunity to kind of, uh, chase that dream of doing 10 marathons in 10 days. Um, and just to see, and then I added on the little like difficulty of doing it in seven different continents, um, just to see if I could do it and to see if it would be possible. And then also it kind of tied in with like a couple weeks later, I was doing a, I was planning to run across Israel, kind of what Charlie was talking about with like a big journey type run and that was going to be 10 days also and so i wanted to kind of get a feel for like what does it look like to run 10 marathons in 10 days and like if i can do that then hopefully if i just multiply that by two kind of like my crazy math where like oh i'm just gonna win the jfk 50 miler because i ran 240 <laughs> like oh if i've done 10 marathons in 10 days that means i can do you know 63 miles a day for 10 days uh with like you know, six to 10,000 feet of elevation gain and a very shoddily marked trail. Um, that'll be no problem. <laughs> no and, and so that was kind of the why behind it. And then it's always cool to like, if you have a chance to set a world record, it's, it's always worth taking a crack at. And it was actually funny that Charlie was saying like the, the tough thing, actually the first day I was like so far off of the time that I needed to do because like it was actually super warm in Antarctica. It was like 32 degrees and the whole ice just turned into like slush. So it's just like running in mud. And I was like, oh, sweet. I just messed up the very first day. Like, how am I ever going to get this world record? And like, that's a, that's when you have to decide like, hey, am I going to just quit now or am I going to try to do this thing? And um, and then I was able to bring the time down by running faster than I needed to in, in the other places. And so like, those are the kind of things where you have to make a decision and it became about like, I just want to see if I can do this rather than I want to get a record. It's just, just personal. Like I want to, I want to know if, if, and, and a lot of times, I don't know if any of you guys get this, you have the person that you think you are and you tell yourself you are. And then when it gets hard, that person, you have to actually have to 
be that person that you've told yourself you are. And so that's a really cool point because you're like, yeah, I'm this really tough guy. And then it gets really tough and you're like, maybe I don't want to be that tough guy. Uh, and then you have to make a decision there. And that's a really cruxy point. And sometimes you're not that person and that's okay. Like, and I think that that's something that's really cool about what we do is we all have the opportunity to define what success looks like to us. And so like, okay, I was that guy until 80 miles and next time I might be that guy until 100 miles or I'm be that guy until seven days or 10 days or 21 days. And, um, and so sometimes it doesn't work out, but I think that we all want to kind of find where that edge is. It's good to hear that you say it gets hard for you because it doesn't look like it. <laughs> what, what does that look like for you, it getting hard? At what point does that come? What does the devil on your shoulder look like in that moment? Can I chime in? <clears throat> sure. Because we were talking in the car, and I, I think I, I want to make Michael talk about the Israel journey that he was on, because we, we were talking about this idea of, like, in running the Sahara, which, you know, there's a, there's a film that very clearly shows on, like, day six, we, we had achieved about half the planned mileage. We, like, my two teammates were on IVs, support people had quit, we'd been lost and run out of food. Like, it fell apart, like, that quickly. And it seemed like we were not going to bounce back. But then there's a, there's a resiliency that I think everybody has if you just stick with it long enough. So we were, we were talking about the Israel story a little bit, and I, yeah. I, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was... <laughs> well, it happened a couple of times, uh, and I think like in, if anyone's done anything um, pretty long or big, like you have those ups and downs. The first day when I got to the desert, I was like, I got my ass kicked. It was like I was supposed to do 60 miles. I ended up doing like 50 miles, and I was absolutely like dead. And I was like, oh, this is this is this is on. Like this is this is this is gonna be for real. Like I was like planning to play chess with the crew after we finished the day. And like, I had all these big ideas of like, I'll be sending emails, blah, blah, blah. And I like looked like 10 dudes, like jumped out of the woods and beat the crap out of me, like with rubber hoses. And like, yeah, it was, it was, and I just curled up in like a fetal position and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then the next day I bounced back and like, and then it happened again at like, Eight days in, I was having a rough day, and we had to. F it was weird. It was like we were in near the beach, and it got flooded, flooded out, and there was like nowhere to go. And uh, it was it looked like a small puddle, like maybe up to your knees. And then the guys that were running with me were like, "Oh, we'll just we'll just go around or back or something." I was like. No, I was like, you know, like that Gordian knot type thing. Like I was like, we're going that way. And I just like forded in. And then all of a sudden it was like up to my chin. And I just went from like, it was, it was probably like 80 degrees. And I dropped my core temperature down to like, I don't know, 50 degrees. And, and then as soon as we got out of there, we went to the beach and it was like this beach where they fly all these kites. And so the wind was just whipping and it, and I just couldn't regulate my temperature anymore because I'd been running so much. So I'm like sitting in this chair and I swear to God, I have like three puffy coats on, a wool hat, uh, and I'm shaking and like, they're like, what's going on? And I'm just like, I can't, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I. 
I was just, I couldn't, like, I wasn't making any sense. I was just like, uh, and uh, they're like, okay, okay. I was like, I need calories. I was like, cause I've been in this point before. And that's what's so cool when you do one of these journey runs is like, I've been in a hundred miler where I'm at mile 80, nothing's working. I'm sitting in a chair and I'm just like, I'm going to sit here until I feel better. And like, they're all like trying to bring me stuff. And I'm like, no, never, I'm never, that's not going to work. And like, nothing's like, everything looks like broken glass and I'm just like pushing it away. But I'm like, I need calories. So like, I'm trying to cram calories in. And then they're like, just close your eyes for a second. And I close my eyes and I see this like school bus, like a big, like yellow school bus with like, uh, heart shaped, um, headlamps. And I'm like, that's not real, dude. <laughs> that is not real. And I was like, I need to stand up right now. And I like got out of the chair. And I swear, I look like I was climbing Mount Everest. And I have the most hilarious picture of me. Like, there's dudes like broed out with like, like shirts off, like glistening bodies, like flying kites. And I'm like, with like my poles. And I'm like, basically like like crutching my way down the beach and I'm like, and it's not like I only have 10 K to go until the finish. I have like three days, you know? So it's like, it's like, sh I'm host like, uh, but I was like able to eat something. And then like 20 minutes later, my buddy sees me uh, and they're driving like, and they're like, what the hell happened? And I'm like, woo! I'm like calling my brother. I'm like, everything's cool, Matt. Look at me. Like my brother always makes fun of people that overdress I'm like, dude, you got to see me. I'm like FaceTiming my brother. I'm like, I got all these parkas on. I'm like, dude, it's like 90 degrees. Look, 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 you got to make fun of this. Like, and I felt better. And it was like one of those things where it's like at your lowest point, like that would have been the point where like, I knew that that was the cruxy point. Like that's the point where I was going to, like, if I was going to quit, like no one would have faulted me. I'd been eight days. I was, you know, on record pace. Like I could have stopped for like two days and still gotten the record, but I got up and I kept walking. And then 20 minutes later, my, my body caught back up and I started getting hot. And all of a sudden I'm like throwing like clothes off and like started sprinting later that day. And I still had like another, I still had another 40 K to go that day. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm almost done. I was like, no, I'm going to be out here another like seven hours, you know? So like, those are the type of things. And it's cool when you, when that happens, because at that point I didn't know, like, I didn't know if, if, if I walked 10 feet, if it was going to make any difference. But I think a lot of times if you just keep moving and you just keep persisting, like you, and, and I said it actually in a couple of the races since then, I was like, I can't feel like this bad the entire day. Like I just can't, like it can't get any worse. Like from here, like it's gotta be at better. And I think a lot of times, like, it just takes moving forward and good things will happen. Charlie, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? Besides listening to my story. <laughs> <laughs> Quit smoking crack. No. <clears throat> Endurance That's event. That's actually the truth. Endurance event. Yes. Um, Quit smoking crack. <laughs> I was really good at it. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, running this hair was certainly, no, you know what? The hardest thing I ever did was actually the, a failed attempt at setting a record for the fastest run across the U.S., you know, uh, because, yeah, it was just a, it was a combination of things that um, did me in 
part of it was the stress of actually planning a big expedition and getting to the start line. You know, I had MRSA, I had a staph infection that, you know, you should definitely not try to run 70 miles a day <laughs> with a staph infection. And, and there was no choice, though. There were sponsors, there was pressure, you know, the money had already been spent. There wasn't like, there was no delaying it for a week or a month. There, there was, you know, just going. And pretty much every, I made it about 18 days of 70 miles a day before I had to call it quits. And um, every That's single- still a long time, dude. <clears throat> yeah. That's every, a lot of miles. Every step of that was, was awful. I mean, every step from the beginning, you know, usually you hope that it's gonna, you know, you, you'd have the dive into the abyss and you're gonna be having good times and bad times. And this was just all bad, like from the beginning. <clears throat> Yet, what ended up happening is, and there is a Running America's another film. Uh, Marshall Ulrich, you know, did this with me, and uh, Marshall ended up continuing to run, and he finished the run, and I got on a bike and finished this thing out. That's not in the film because this wasn't a film called Biking America, so <laughs> uh, you know we didn't put that in. But I, but I continued going, and um, I ended up like I was doing this run for the united way and for these children's groups and this uh, special needs uh, group of children so there were these schools throughout the midwest especially where i had said you know i had slated to stop at these schools and from day one it was readily apparent it was going to take me <laughs> 16 hours every single day to run this 70 miles so if i had continued like i was never going to get to stop it wasn't going to happen I got on the bike, I, mean, I was forced to quit, I got on the bike and um, I stopped at all those schools. <clears throat> and I got out and I, you know, I, I talked to schools filled with special needs kids and I pushed kids in wheelchairs around the track and I did all these things that I, that I actually wouldn't have done even though that was the purported purpose of the run. And, uh, and it taught me a lesson, you know, it reminded me uh, in particular, that I'm, uh, you know, and I know, I know Mike agrees, you've said it a few times, that the main reason to do these things is to see if I can do it. You know, records come sometimes with things, and notoriety might come, both good and bad, with things, but the fact of the matter is, at the core, it still is about seeing whether or not I'm capable of doing it. In that case, I wasn't capable, but I, but I actually got more out of it in other ways than I would have thought I could. And that's, you know, my, my big project that's coming up soon um, is, is all, it's embedded, that idea is embedded in this next project about uh, slowing down and paying attention to all those other things along the way, not just trying to get there as fast as I can. Mike talks about the cruxy points and how he just kept moving forward. What, what do you go, where do you go mentally in those cruxy points? Yeah, well, you know, and look, for me, it is, I keep talking about addiction. I don't, I actually don't talk about this all that much, but the fact is, com no matter how bad I feel in any event, any expedition I've ever done, nothing compares to where I was, you know, in some of those darkest days and years. And I do, I, I go right back there. I mean, for me, that's the easy place. And I am reminded, you know, that uh, I'm choosing to be having this this suffering especially if it's related to running or an expedition i'm choosing to be there and i'm usually there with especially if it's in another country 
I'm, I'm there with people who don't have a choice about suffering. And so I'm reminded that uh, I'm lucky. And, you know, the thing is we make in running, just like in life, we have a bad habit of making big decisions at really low moments and really high moments. And so one of the things that I've really focused on through this last 10 years of my life especially is um, never making a big decision at those times because they're not real. Bad times don't last, good times don't last, and most of our life is kind of in that, in that middle ground. And if you just let, the metaphor being with running, if you just let that bad moment pass and realize that it, no matter how it might feel in that moment, that isn't going to last. It's really not. You know, and if you, there's an answer. If you give yourself calories, if you, you know, if you drink, you, you eat, you get up and you start moving, things, you know, will actually get better. And that's the way it is with the rest of life. I mean, <clears throat> nothing, you, you really don't learn much about yourself until everything falls apart. And so it's important to put yourself in that position from time to time and see what happens. I want to talk to you, Mike, about training. How do you prepare to run 10 marathons in 10 days in 2.55? Well, it's, it's, again, I think it's one of those things where I've been fortunate to be able to handle a lot of volume uh, over the course of my career. And I feel like I've been training to do that since I started. <laughs> like, even when I first started, like, when I was telling the story earlier, like, I strung a lot of marathons back to back and I've been averaging probably 10 to 15 marathons a year for, I don't know, since like maybe 18 years or something. So, um, just kind of having that kind of muscle memory and the ability to like, you know, we were talking, somebody was saying like they saw me run the Olympic trials marathon in Houston. And then the next day I ran the Houston marathon, um, and just kind of knowing that I can do that kind of stuff, but like knowing if I could do it for 10 days, I wasn't sure. I knew I could do seven days and I've done stage races. Um, so I, so I kind of had that idea of like, I think I can do this, but then to like, well, am I going to be able to do it in the time that I want to do? That's, you know, a different story. Um, but really a lot of times you just have to jump into it and see if you can. What does a training week look like, though, when you're not doing 10 marathons in 10 days? Um, so I, I do what I call, like, invisible training, and so I try to Wait, make... Wait, I do that? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the same as not training? It's a little different. Oh. It's, um, so I try to keep, like, it as minimal impact on my family and uh, work obligations as I can. So I basically run to and from work and then try to do something at lunch. Um, now I've been working more from home. So I've been doing a run in the morning and a run in the afternoon. And then, uh, two days a week, Monday and Wednesday, I do weight training. If anyone follows me on Instagram, they've seen like, like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> like, damn, he wears short shorts, but, um, uh, wait, that was weight training. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've been doing, um, some, some definitely some more cross training, weight training stuff, which I've really, really enjoyed. And I do, uh, that almost every day and then two days with a trainer, a guy named Jesse Fuller, and he's, he's made me a better athlete for sure. Um, and then it's anywhere between, I'd say 70 to 120 miles a week, um, 
and it's probably going to be around that as I try to go. I'm going to try to get my Olympic trials qualifier again this year, so that'll be a sub 219. So I just got back on the track, and that was track on Tuesday, a tempo run on Thursday, and then I have these two races this weekend, and so it'll kind of be in that pattern probably going forward. I have a. You, it's funny. I have a story that I have to tell real quick, and it's uh, uh, we were both invited to a uh, on a Spartan cruise. I think that was the one and only they told. It me. was. Yeah, 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 never happened again for yeah. for many good reasons. <laughs> and and uh, 2015, I think. It was I like think four so. Years yeah. Ago. So it was to the Bahamas, and it was to a, an island, a private island there, and. Um, so Michael and I are both on this ship and Dean Carnassus and some other, like there was a, a move to kind of bring some. Bart Yasso. Yeah. Bart Yasso was there and uh, Travis Macy. Yeah. Travis and his dad, uh, yeah. uh Mark Macy yeah, was yeah. there and Ben Greenfield. Yep. And it was, um, so it was cool. I mean, it was like, and my kids yeah. were like yeah, the only kids there. Yeah. Yeah. Except for Ben's kids, and my kids are like just going in the middle of like the jacuzzi, and like it's all like buff Spartan <laughs> dudes and girls, and kids are like, "Hey, <sighs> yeah, it was hilarious." So, <laughs> yeah. And Joe Joe DeSena has us out doing burpees on the freaking deck of the ship at five thirty in the morning, and yeah, never say yes to that guy. Uh, I don't know, man. Stuff. It's no, pretty it's, fun. No, it yeah. is. It was a blast. He's. <laughs> That's his life. He does. That's not just for show either. <laughs> no, that's, I don't. Think that's so. him all the time. Anyway, so the story I want to tell though briefly is that um, we go there. It's two, three or four days total, and so we we make the the sale there, and and it was fun and just hanging out and speakers, and it was a it was a cool cruise. And we get there, and there's the race, and it's really just a it's a sprint. Yeah. So for Spartan, that's three to four miles, 25 obstacles. And it was great because you're diving into water that's like, you know, 80 degrees. And, yeah. and it was very comfortable, put it that way. So we have this, we have this great experience. And uh, I had done one Spartan race before then, like a stadium race, I think, in Boston. But I was happy with how I did and all of that. Anyway, we... Uh, and Mike does race. I don't know. You did pretty well, I think. No, I did terrible. Yeah, I that's what crushed. I thought, actually. Yeah, but yeah. I just was trying to be nice. No, no, but, I did bad. Um, but I, was, so they, I was there to do bad. You know that. <laughs> that, that was, Mission that was, accomplished. Yeah, exactly. So we get back on the ship, though, and we're sailing back. And like that that night, you know, or the day we're, we're going back, Mike's like, hey, I'm going to try to break the 50K world record on a treadmill on the ship. You know, do you want to come help? And like, so there's like 10 of us in there in the gym and this crappy treadmill from like 1985. And there's like four crappy. of them. It was really bad. It like cut out in the middle of it and he had to jump over to another one. And we had to figure out, okay, does this still count work? You know, whatever. But yeah. we had to do the math and it was all fine. So Mike is, he's, what was the time you needed? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to get to the other part. Yeah. yeah I think I, I what did I, you I think, think you needed to I do? Did, I, I, it was, it was a, a very quick, uh, internet search on uh cruise ship Wi-Fi, which is like $25 a minute. So, <laughs> um, so basically I was like, Oh, as long as I run under like three hours and 10 minutes, I should be fine. Yeah. So yeah. he aimed for three ten. and you could just see him just cruising and, you know, laughing. And so I ran, I ran probably, you know, seven or eight miles at that pace, you know, next to him on another treadmill and then pretended that I was just going to let somebody else take my place to be nice, but I actually couldn't go that fast any longer. And, huh? The ship was oh moving. yeah. The yes, whole time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. it's like this whole weird thing going yeah. on. 
So anyway, he breaks the record. Woohoo! We we do this amazing cheer. It's fantastic. He breaks the record, and like, I don't know. It was within an hour. Somebody comes up to him and says, "Hey, uh, dude, I'm sorry to tell you this, but just three days ago, somebody else already broke that record, and they ran faster than you." Yeah. <laughs> and so he didn't break the record. So we're like, "Oh man, that's too bad." Like by like 35 seconds or something right. ridiculous. So yeah. like to midnight. Midnight, and I'm not kidding. This is how I remember it anyway. But midnight here. Charlie, do you have any goose? <laughs> do you have any electrolytes? Do you have any, what do you have? What do you have? I'm going to go try this again. So like, if anybody's been on a cruise, like we're going into port and we're going to get there at like six o'clock in the morning and then you get off the ship. And so he needs to get back on a treadmill at like three o'clock in the morning and still finish before we get into port. And he doesn't, he's used all his supplies. He's got Dude, nothing. Dude, nothing left. He's yeah. got nothing. He's like, he's the drunk guy at midnight going around. You got any beer? Yeah. <laughs> Except he's asking for goose and electrolytes. And so anyway, uh, I give him what I have and uh, go back to the gym with him, of course, and uh, ran a few more miles. Anyway, you probably can guess where this is going. He, of course, breaks the record again. So he just casually runs a 50K world record that's not. And then because someone else had run faster, he got on there and beat it by a couple minutes. Yeah, dude. I crushed it that next not time. Any, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not, not doing this again. <laughs> And then I had to do it again, like uh, like a couple months later. Uh, yeah. I, Hoka's like, that's a cool trick. You can run on the treadmill for that long? You should come to our sales meeting and break three hours. Well, so. the beauty of it is not that many people do that. And so you you, it is true. you got to control the narrative there. Yes. But you could just go, if you'd broken it by 15 minutes, then you'd be screwed. Yes. Then you'd have to Yeah, that course. would be tough. What was the time gap between the two 50Ks? Uh, it was like um, eight I, hours. No, no, no. I think it was um, it was Saturday night to Sunday. It was like twenty twenty hours. Was maybe? it? Yeah. It might have been yeah eighteen to twenty hours or something. Yeah, yeah. because that's just what everybody does. I <laughs> yeah, mean, I could have done it, but I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, it, it would have been rude. Well, and I had to double check with my wife because I promised her like once I did that that I was like, oh, I'll be free. I don't have anything else to do. Because she was like, that's not a very fun date night <laughs> to watch you run 50K on a treadmill. Not what I signed up for. So, so how, how, because you do these things, both of you do these things where you're doing something really hard, then you go do it again the next day or 20 hours later. How do you bounce back so quickly? I mean, most of us are running far less than you and hobbling around in the next morning just to get out of bed. So what does recovery look like? Um, do you want to start? Or I, I, start. I, I get this question a lot, so you can start if you want. You start. I'll just, then, I'll, then I'll try to say something better. <laughs> okay. um, so like, typically, if I possibly can, I, I want to try to move right after the event. So keep moving, I think, is one of the big things. Um, a lot of times, especially if it's a longer race and you've been cramming food in your mouth for like 24, 30 hours. We were talking about hard rock, 31 hours, diagnosed to food, 34 hours, or... You know, if you're running for five days across the Gobi Desert or something and you just don't feel like eating. But, like, I think it is important to try to get some food in um, as soon as you can. It doesn't necessarily, like, a lot of times, like, I'll make a deal with myself. And I've said this at talks before. It's like, you know, whatever your body's, like, craving is probably what you need. And so, like, 
I'll give myself a treat. And it, a lot of times, like, it's like those $15 cold pressed juices, you know, like <laughs> we just got actually at Whole Foods. But, um, but it's like something like that's ridiculous that you wouldn't normally do. Um, because I feel like your body actually deserves it. Like after Israel, my body was just like, I want everything. Just keep feeding me. Um, and then some kind of active recovery. And I, I like usually after a really long run, I like to do like a hard mile the next day. Uh, and I feel like that, um, usually kickstarts the process of allowing me to get back to training and just kind of resets everything. Uh, so I'll run like a really fast mile on the track if I have access to it. Uh, and then just try to get back into training. And usually I have, I think one of my superpowers, if I have one is the ability to like, uh, just move on to the next thing pretty quickly. So like I, I'm, I'm pleased with the, however it went, or I'm disappointed, but okay, that lasts for a little bit. And now what's next, you know? And so like, I think having a goal and, and something to look forward to gets me back out there and keeps me motivated. Yeah. I think that, that, um, for me, it's been this learning process of uh, trusting the process, trusting my body. And I've done so many of the multi-day, both events and in my own expeditions that I, I do know what to expect. And it, seem, it feels very often, I mean, I, I, the worst moment in the Sahara always every single day was four o'clock in the morning when I opened my eyes. And it was like the first thing thought in my mind is like, oh no, I have to do this again. <laughs> Like there was no, like, there's no quitting. I, it would have taken me a, two weeks just to get out of the desert. Like, so there was nowhere to go. And so knowing that if I just got up and got moving though, that it, it would magically, the body is amazingly resilient and it will bounce back. I mean, you do have to, you know, you do have to feed it and you do have to give it lots to drink. But if you do those two things and stay away from the negative feelings, the negative thoughts, the, the self-defeating things, which isn't easy to do, but I mean, it doesn't mean that the fear is not there. Like I acknowledge that fear that I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to do this, but pretty much every single time, if I can just get up and start moving that next day uh, on, on multi-day events, then uh, I, you know, I'm able to pull through and I, I, I do a lot more hot yoga now. I don't do as many, you know, I'm 56 now and it's, it's not, you know, I don't see any end to what I'm doing, but I do see some shifts in the way I train because I need to be more aware of like I, sleep is the top priority in my training plan. The number one priority for me I have to have eight hours of sleep and I just prioritize it. And I say no to things that are going to stop me from doing that, except for Spartan races, apparently. But um, that's, you know, that is a priority. And then hydration is the second one. Like for, th for me, those are, I'm a plant-based eater too. Really, we both are. Yep. So, um, you know, so neither of us, uh, you know, we've both made independently decisions to uh, eat very healthy uh, and to, you know, to, I don't know if you sleep as much as I do. I don't, Probably but that not. is one of my, that is, that is one of my weaknesses that I'm trying to address. Um, but yeah, like that's a good thing when you're doing these long events and you, you know, like four hours sleep, I'm like, that's a lot. Um, but if I can get more, it's, you know, it's, it's nice, but I, I don't necessarily need it to be able to, to function. Um, and 
as long as I get like a four hour block, I'm good. But that's something that I've been trying to address just because I know that that's something that could make me even better. So, well, and, and you know, I mean, everybody in here works, you know, you, if you've ever tried to start a business or you have a family or whatever, I mean, it's, it seems impossible <laughs> a lot of times. So there's a lot of comparable things in life that are really the same. And the only answer is to get up and do it again. And, you know, for the most part, it, it will, you know, you will find your way, you know, the vast majority of the time. And I think one of the cool things is like, you don't have to start out at the pace that you're intending to go. Like, I think that's like, if you can ease into it, especially like the training, like you don't have to go out and do a track workout the next day, like, or run a mile. But if you go out and do something like within 15 or 20 minutes, you'll be like, oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I'll tell you that first 15 minutes is going to suck really bad. Yeah. Usually. <laughs> suck. It's kind of like when you first started running and you're like, why do people like this? It's kind of like that. I want to open it up. Who has questions from the audience? Uh, I have a question as you um, age, longevity. Are you um, training at a slower pace? Are you, um, I mean, you talked about sleeping, eating well, but um, it's training. That one may have been a little bit hard to hear, so I wanted to quickly repeat. The audience member asked Charlie and Michael how their training has changed and their paces have changed with age. So, as the older guy, I will say, you know, the how old are you? I'm 45. <laughs> wow, you're close. I know, right? Um, my my training has definitely slowed down, but what's interesting is like my racing is not that much slower. And I have found out, I mean, look, ultras in particular are, are extremely mental, you know, I mean, it's, I think that running mar and obviously Mike also does really well at ultras too, but, um, with marathons, like there's no, you can't fake it in a marathon. Like if you're trying to go fast, I mean, you're pretty much like, I always say the hardest races I ever did were marathons because they're, you're redlining pretty much the whole time. Whereas in an ultra, I, I like the flow of the fact that it's, it's really a puzzle. It's hydration, it's nutrition, it's, me, you know, it's mental toughness, it's all these things and it ebbs and flows the whole time and you can feel great at 40 miles and be laying next to the trail at 42, inexplicably. And, and I love that part of the sport. So what I found is my training has definitely slowed down. Um, but I do a lot more cross training, a lot more cycling. You know, I really like cycling, uh, a lot more, you know, hot yoga and trying to do things that uh, aren't quite as hard on my body. So uh, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I've... He hasn't slowed down. No, yeah. I mean... I'll, he doesn't I'll, even get to answer this. Well, one. No, no, I mean, I think that being said, like, I'd say a turning point for me was in 2012, I had five stress fractures of my pelvis and five hernias, like, simultaneously. And that was, like, um, like I thought maybe career-ending. Like, and it's pretty awesome, like, to have come back from that and actually do, you know, even better since then. But at that point, like, I would always hit triple digits, like... Before that, like, I'd be like, my foot would be falling off. I'd be like, well, that's okay. You better fall off because I'm going to get to 105 miles this week. And that's just the way it's going to be. Um, but since then, when I came back, I, I was just happy to run eight miles. Like, 
once. Like I was just like, just let me run eight miles. And then I got to like 60 miles and I was like, oh my God, I'm at 60 miles. Like this is amazing. Uh, and then I noticed like my marathon time was only like five minutes slower. And I was like, huh, maybe I don't have to run 125 miles a week every week. And so like, I think just being cognizant that you just need to do what you need to do to get the result that you want. You don't have to, you don't have to do a certain arbitrary number. If you're doing the work that's going to get you where you want to go, then it's, it's something that you can feel your way through. And it's, it's almost like you do the the minimum that you need to, to get that result. And for me, like, I know I want to run sub 219, so I do need to kind of be at that higher mileage and do the track work and the tempo runs and that kind of stuff. But to be able to do what I've been doing now, I could be at 70 to 100 miles a week and it would be no problem. And it's it's just one of those things where um, it was like a s- switch turned and I was just like, why was I doing that? Like, that was just because I thought that that's what you needed to do. I think we train a lot differently, but I, I do, I, I mean, I even, I call it instinctive training. And my, so my wife was a professional volleyball player for years. And when we first met, she would say, I was training for Badwater and she, she was on my crew. And she's like, so how many miles are you running, you know, this weekend? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, what do you mean you don't know? Like, how do you not have this? Like, she was a super high-end athlete. How do you not have this completely planned out? I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to feel on Saturday. Like, why would I decide how, what I'm going to do if I don't know how I'm going to feel? And what I knew was if I had 90 days before Badwater, I knew that I needed to hit certain marks at some point throughout then. I knew I needed certain mileage, certain things. But for me, a long time ago, I sort of switched to this idea of, you know, asking myself a few core questions. Like, so the answer wasn't, well, I don't feel like training today. It was you know, I didn't sleep well this week, I've had a cold, I was, you know, working on a problem, whatever it might be. And so instead of saying I have to go out and run for, you know, eight hours on Saturday, you know, I might cut myself a break and say, okay, I'm going to do, you know, a couple of hours today and move that eight hour run until, you know, later in the week until I felt like it. So I think sometimes the mistake people make is maybe being a little too much of a you know, a slave to the schedule that's on paper, like I have to do this because my coach said so, or that's what it says right here. And not, not always doing that and listening to your body. Other questions? So first of all, thank you for uh, the run this evening. Uh, yeah. It was fun just to run and, and talk with you guys a little bit. But um, <clears throat> I think Chris really asked the main questions about resiliency. Can you break down? How do you, how do you come back from stuff? Or do you break down? It's good to know that you do, that you do come. Well, back. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, most of all, I just simply wanted to say that uh, it's really nice to the perception of someone who has, <clears throat> excuse me, the accolades or the accomplishments that that we see on the the resume, that you think that it's going to be this kind of person that does that kind of accomplishment. And it's good to know that you guys really just real down to earth, crazy fun, good people. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really appreciate it because everybody knows he's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned that you both went plant-based eating. Was there something that A, triggered or changed 
that for you? And then once you started eating plant-based, did you see any change in your like athletic performance and or recovery? Yeah. I mean, I'm <laughs> everything changed for me. I mean, I found that for me when I stopped eating meat and I, why did I, I, I forget, I forget my own narrative sometimes of why I quit, but it, it was a combination of things. It was a combination of uh, you know, I happen to live in North Carolina, not unlike Texas, where, you know, you, you can barely find a restaurant that isn't basically meat centric. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, I just made a decision that I, it was as simple as I think I probably read an article. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I really messed that story up. It was about a girl. Of course it was. Yeah. Right. It was always about a girl. So, no, I was, I was dating this woman who... Um, she was uh, vegan and so all the food I was eating for a while was vegan and, and it taught me that I didn't need to eat meat. It's funny that I've forgotten that but um, <laughs> but I basically just agreed to like 30 days. I'm going to try this for 30 days and you know in that 30 days has now turned into you know I don't know 20 years or something so it just is uh, it's a lot easier these days, which is fantastic. You know, you can find, I also eat gluten-free, um, not because I have an allergy or anything like that. And I'm not saying I never eat a piece of bread, but, um, you know, at home we're a hundred percent gluten-free and a hundred percent vegan. And, uh, it just is, I found that when I stopped eating so much gluten and switched to like brown rice pasta and things like that, and even just Ezekiel bread, which isn't gluten-free, but it's, it's much lower. And, uh, I just felt better and my joints felt better because like gluten causes an inflammatory response, which most people don't realize. And so when I quit eating gluten, like my, my knees stopped hurting and I thought my knees just hurt because I ran a lot and I'm sure that was part of it. But uh, the change in diet just really, uh, I just feel cleaner. And the people always ask that the, the protein question and it's like, it's so pardon me for saying it's so ridiculous because plant protein is so much more efficient and more readily available than animal protein and you know so much more consistent in the way you digest it and like it's you can count on it you can count on that kind of protein whereas you just can't with uh with animal protein yeah and i guess my story is a little bit different um uh we, we had it's a, if we have a second to delve into it, but my, uh, my parents, we had some foreign exchange students from the UK that came and they were vegetarian and my mom was totally freaking out. Like it was like my big fat Greek wedding. She was like, what, what do I feed them? Oh no. Uh, and it was like this whole thing for like a month and then they came and they were just normal. Like they just got, they just got like didn't get pepperoni on their cheese pizza from Domino's. It was like, that wasn't a big deal. Um, and I was like, wow, I don't need to eat red meat then either. And so like I stopped eating red meat in high school and I was like, wow, I feel kind of good. And then I was still eating like, I think, um, I, I, like I said, I played lacrosse in school and like, you know, lacrosse is like kind of like a, it's like a fake manly sport. Like, you know, it's like, they're not like football players, but some of the guys think they are, you know? And, um, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you don't eat meat, like you're not a real man type thing, I guess. And so I was still eating chicken and then I got salmonella poisoning and I was like, I don't need to eat chicken, uh, anymore. 
And then uh, I was like, well, if I don't eat chicken, like, and then, so what happens, and I think you might see this, is like, whenever you go out with a vegetarian, everyone's like very quick to be like, look, they have this. And it's like the one thing, it's like pasta primavera, like it used to be back in the day. And I was like, that sucks actually, but thank you. Um, and so I was still eating fish. And so like every time I went out, people are like, oh, you're going to get fish. And like, I was just like, I'm not going to eat that anymore. And then each time I like took away something, I felt better. And I was just like, huh, this is really interesting. And it was just kind of like a slow, slow progression. And then I went all the way to vegan and I did that for a while. And I was just kind of a bad vegan, like a lazy vegan, which is kind of like the worst actually probably because i was just eating like pasta and red sauce and bread and that's not really healthy (laughs) and wasn't eating really any vegetables it was like a really lame vegan and uh just yeah it wasn't good and then i went back to like so i eat eggs and honey or or the two animal products that i eat now but i think the coolest thing that happened to me when i went vegetarian and vegan was like it exposed me to all these other things that I didn't even know existed. Like when you're only eating animal protein, it's like when you go out to eat, you get chicken or beef or fish. Right. And like everything else is just kind of a garnish. And it was like every, it opened my eyes. Like I learned about hummus, like, which is one of my favorite foods in the world now. And like, um, nuts and almond butters and like all this, like, I didn't even know that there was almond butter. Like I didn't grow up like, this was like before Whole Foods, like I didn't even know that was a thing. And so like the ability to like know about couscous and quinoa and like beets and like all these kind of things that are delicious that I feel like I would have missed out on had I only um, had a very restrictive diet. Like I'm really glad that I chose this path. It's a, And I, I do want to say too for me and – Oh, actually, I don't know your philosophy on this, but but I mean, I I do feel like it is. Um, I don't feel like it. It is a better thing for the planet, you know. I I'm certain of that, you know, and so for, I feel good about how I eat and the impact that I make, and I I do try to. Uh, my run across the Sahara Desert years ago, I'm happy to say, launched. Um, you know, I was a co-founder of water.org, which is the world's largest clean water nonprofit today, partnered with Matt Damon. And, and, you know, that was just because I wanted to see if I could do something, if I could run across the Sahara and this next project that I have coming up, um, going from the lowest place on all seven continents to the highest point on each continent. So beginning in Africa and ending, uh, in Asia, going from the Dead Sea to the top of Everest. and uh, in conjunction with that, launching green.org, which is uh, going to launch July 17th in New York um, with a couple of amazing partners, Wells Fargo and JetBlue. And, you know, and it is this idea, I guess I just wanted to say, I care nutritionally about what's going on, but I also hope to encourage people to um, seek you know, new ways to be healthier for yourself and for the, for the planet. And I think the, the mistake people make a lot of times is thinking that they have to change everything. You know, it doesn't have to happen overnight. You know, you can change one thing. You can decide not to eat meat, you know, two days a week. I mean, it can be as simple as just making those small changes and that can bring about some important changes for the planet. Well, and the cool thing too is it's like an experiment of one. If it doesn't work, it's not like 
you can't go back. You just be like, oh, okay, that didn't work. <laughs> like, okay, that's cool. Like, and I don't think, like, I'm not one of the people that's like, oh, just because I do it, you should do it. But I'll say for me, it's made a big difference, I feel like, as far as, like, I was really worried, you know, coming up from, a, like, a lacrosse background, like, if you don't eat meat, like, how am I going to have the strength to, like, be able to run and do all these things? And and I think, like, what it it's shown me is, like, there's there's a lot of different ways to do things and if you're open to it you can you can also have a pretty good experience and if it doesn't work then change it i've got one more question for you both if you were going to advise anyone in this room on doing trail doing ultras doing things that are longer than maybe just a marathon what would you tell people how should they get started Besides a Spartan trail race on Sunday. <laughs> exactly. That's one way. <laughs> um, you want to take that first? Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. I think it's pretty simple and it, and it is a lot of, a lot of, there's, there's some kind of comfort and safety thing about running on the roads and about running your normal things. And so my answer to that is more a, um, sort of a philosophical approach approach to running is just try something you haven't done. And if it's trail running, that's fine. But like also, um, you know, if you're thinking about how cool it might be to do an expedition or try something that's out of your comfort zone, you don't have to run across the country or a country or whatever, you know, get a, go to the library and get the map of your county and figure out how you can get from one end to the other 50 miles across and and crew yourself and do a little self one day you know adventure kind of a thing and it's so it's not that hard and it's it's really satisfying to try something that you know you're just not comfortable with yeah i agree man i've been doing a lot of fkts on my own lately and those are super powerful and they're one of the coolest ways like i did an fkt on a trail by my house it was 300 kilometers like 184 miles uh, it was a trail that I, tra- it was a, it's a, it's not really even a trail. It's like a rail to trail. It's like crushed gravel. Um, it's called the CNO canal. I watched you do that one. That was, that was fun to watch. Dude, it was, yeah, it was epic, man. It was, it was one of the coolest things I've ever done, but it was like 36 hours, like straight through and like the whole running community came out and supported it. And it's a really cool way to to embrace your community. And I just did one actually between the 10 days, uh, 10 marathons in 10 days and the 10 days in Israel, I set a FKT on the trail, like 400 meters from my house. It's like a 45 mile bike trail. And I broke the record from like the eighties. Um, but it's like, I run there every day and I just was like, I've always wanted to run the whole thing. Why not just do it? And I just called up a buddy and was like, Hey, are you in town? Yeah. All right. You want to crew me? Sure. Okay. Hey, is, uh, is FPT a thing? <laughs> Fastest personal time? Yeah. Seems like it should be, right? Or there's like the only known time. Wait, I need to wait, let me get my phone out. But like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of adventures you can do like that. But I mean, even like, we have a great resource here with like rogue expeditions. I mean, if you wanted to do like you're uncomfortable going out on the trails on your own and you want to go to like one of my favorite things is just rolling into a new town and like putting on my running shoes and running around. And it's a really great way to see a place. And like, I, I can't tell you how many different countries I've been asked directions in because like I'm a runner. They're like, Oh, the dude must be from around here. And I'm like, I have no idea where I am right now either. 
Um, but it's a, like there's 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 no barrier there. Once you have your shoes on and you're moving through a place, like everyone's just like, oh, that guy's just a runner. Like they're not like, oh, that guy's an American or that guy's a white dude or that guy's you know a dad or whatever. You're just a another runner. Like you just fall into another category in people's heads. Uh, and it it's a really true way to. There's no pretense either because you get to see things the way they are. Like. I've seen, you know, beautiful things all over the world uh, just because I was out running around. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to get into into trails or um, it's it's not that much different than running on the roads. I mean, to be honest, just look down and you're going to fall sometimes. But Dude, in Texas, it's different because everything's trying to stab you. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> even the pretty flowers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I, I wanted to say too, you know, another way uh, we had this this run uh, before we started this podcast, and uh, the fine folks from uh, Rogue Expeditions were there with us, and we were talking about people going, and a few people that are actually here are 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 folks who have traveled on these expeditions all over the world, and running is this thread, this part of it that I think is important. So community fellowship you know those are i mean that's what that's a lot of the reason i do all of this is if i was just doing it alone i don't know how much of it i would actually do but um and i was just talking as we were running about my friend zane who uh who runs a, a nonprofit called ubuntu that uh, i wanted to introduce you to so Meet Zane. He's right there. So <laughs> you guys talk. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that is part of it. It is, is it's community and like, you want a trail run, go find people who do trail runs and join them. Because well, and it doesn't have to be the burliest, biggest trail run. I mean, like you can start out with like, just like the uh, 10K on trails. It'll be, it, it'll be interesting to you. Just like, I remember when my brother first started running on trails and he still sucks. Like he'll tell you he sucks. Like he's not fast. But he was like, wow, it is hard to run like nine minute pace on trails. And then like pretty quickly you realize like the time on the trail is a little bit like it becomes less important. And it's more like um, like there's times where you'll be running fast and then other times where you'll be hiking and you'll be like, oh, God, this is a really steep hill. And like uh, I got to cross some water and streams and um, it's it's just a different uh, feel. But you also get to run like I think the cool thing of, like that I'm really fortunate is I get to toggle between the road scene and the trail scene and the ultra scene and the you know different parts of the world scene and and but there is this community that's around it and you'll be embraced where where you wherever you go like there's gonna be someone that'll pat you on the back and share water with you and uh, point you in the right direction when you go the wrong way and be there to you know push you forward so. Um, give it a try. And if you don't like it, don't do it again. Cheers to that. And thank you guys for being a part of our community tonight, Charlie, Mike. Yeah. Really thank really you very Chris. much. Thank you, Chris. There you go. Charlie Engel and Michael Wardian. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope it also inspired you to perhaps, as Charlie said, go get a map of your county and just run across it or some other adventure like that. Those guys certainly show that the limits of human performance are far beyond what we might think. So really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you did as well. Thanks to Michael and Charlie for joining me. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. 
You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.